Welcome to the Political Philosophy Podcast. I'm Toby Bockel. Welcome back after the brief hiatus. Apologies for that. As I mentioned on last week's episode, I was travelling for a couple of weeks. I was seeing all sorts of various relatives in the UK, which was very nice, and I feel very rested after that. But unfortunately, I was moving around every few days and didn't have access to my equipment. So, unfortunately, I wasn't able to release an episode, so apologies for that. Hoping to get back to regular service now. This episode I've been meaning to do for a few weeks, and essentially it's a follow-on from my episode of Economic Inequality, where I look at that issue from a variety of different ethical standpoints. So, if you haven't listened to that episode, that might be good context for this episode. Um, Or if you don't care too much for context, then feel free to jump in with this. But I got so many really good and thoughtful comments and questions on that, I thought it might be worthwhile just to do an episode sort of a bit like a Q&A, but just discussing some of the questions I've got on that, because I I sort of felt like I owed it to my listeners to respond to at least, at least some of what I was getting. Um, even if I wasn't able to write a detailed reply to every single thing I got. But then I also just sort of thought, if I'm going to do the work, you know, it's going to be a little bit of time to, like, come up with a good, substantive response, because some of these, as you'll see, are really, like, in-depth, that I might as well do that for all of you, so that everyone can have access to it, because it's clearly an issue that people are interested in, as they should be. It's a central concern in academic political philosophy. It's a becoming a central issue in our politics. It's making an emergence in American politics, this issue, as I'll talk about towards the end of this episode, in a way that it hasn't done maybe in my lifetime, maybe longer. And it's also, I think, morally urgent. It is a morally important thing that we take action on this issue. So, with that in mind, let's get started. This is me taking your questions. These are coming in from email and social media. I won't get through all of them, but I'll try and do, I'll try and give you a good sample of them. So yeah, I hope you enjoy. This is just me taking your questions in response to my views on economic inequality. Let's get started. So I've got just a list of questions. Some of them are quite long, some of them are quite short. I'm going to get through as many of them as I can. And similar to my Q&A ones, I'm just going to sort of record this one off-the-cuff conversationally and give you just, like, my straightforward takes on it. I'll aim to record for about an hour, but as you all know, sometimes I get really into a topic and I can overrun. So, first question. 
How is your thesis affected by diminishing marginal utility? Is this something you take into account? Yeah, it is, although I didn't use that term. So before I give you my take on diminishing marginal utility, let me just sort of explain what this is. So in economics, you take this idea of utility, which is sort of like welfare or satisfaction. So like if you enjoy eating a hot dog and someone gives you a hot dog and you eat it, then your utility goes up and say no one is no one loses out because of you getting that hot dog, you're not taking it from anyone else, then that would be a utility raising thing. And economists make all sorts of like graphs and charts, they treat it as a variable like you would money or time or measurement, and they assume that utility can be measured along a single scale. So things might be worth so many units of utility. It's kind of like a slightly wonky and abstract way of thinking about human happiness, but that it's axiomatic to economics. So what does diminishing marginal utility mean? Well, there's an idea in economics that your utility goes up with consumption. So again, you get a hot dog, you, your utility goes up through consuming the hot dog. And it doesn't have to be a hot dog, it could be a car, or like a TV show, or whatever. But that gives you, that proceeds pretty directly from your sort of homo economicus, rational self-interest thing. So if utility is kind of like well-being, satisfaction, something like that, and you get utility from consumption, the idea of diminishing marginal utility is for each additional unit of consumption you have, at least of the same good, you get less and less and less utility to it. So think about it this way. If you're starving, you know, you, you haven't had anything to eat in days, and I give you a hot dog, oh, your, your, your utility's going to go up massively, right? Even though it's a nasty hot dog, you know, you're going to be, <laughs> that is going to be something that really makes you happy to get that hot dog, right? And you snarf it down, I give you another hot dog, and like, maybe that's not quite as good as that first hot dog, but it's still pretty good, you know, the first hot dog wasn't very big and you're still hungry, it's not quite the immediate relief of getting the hot dog after you're starving, but still, you know, I'm still bloody hungry, mate, give me that second hot dog, okay, here's a third, cool, yeah, want that third. Okay, here's a fourth. Okay, well, the three hot dogs was quite a lot, but you know what? I haven't eaten for days, and... Yeah, yeah, give me, give me the fourth hot dog. Cool, cool, here's a fifth. Um, yeah, cool, I guess, okay, I could have it. Um, thanks, here's, here's a sixth. Um, sure, mate, cheers, sure got, a, sure got a lot of hot dogs there. Here's a seventh, here's an eighth. And at a certain point... If you imagine like a line on a graph, it's going to go down and eventually it's just going to start approximating zero, right? Like, at a certain point, how many, assume you can't like sell the hot dogs or like, you know, they'll go bad in a few days or whatever. At a certain point, it's just going to be like each additional hot dog really doesn't do anything for you. Now, that's a silly example, but that is kind of how economics at its best is 
big reasoning from very silly examples. But does that universalize? Well, in a sense, it does. You think about, like, these millionaires and billionaires who have, like, ten homes. You know, the first home you own and have access to is going to be hugely utility-raising, right? That's really going to do it for you. Having a second home, great, yeah. Maybe not, maybe not quite the increase in utility as having your first home, but still. Still, I mean, I assume homeowners out there, if I offered you a second home for free, you'd definitely want it. Third, you know, still good. Maybe I live in New York, I have one home in the city, one home upstate, and it would be, still be pretty nice to have one in Miami, go down there in the winter, right? That'd be cool. Four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve. Once you're at, like, that twelfth home, is it really doing anything for you anymore? Right? How many cars do you really need? How many great TV shows could you really watch? And so the essential idea, and why people talk about diminishing marginal utility, is it would seem to have at least moderately redistrib redistributive in implications, right? So if, if people really aren't getting anything from consumption after so many units of it, does it make sense for people to have an amount of capital, amount of money, beyond what they need for it, right? So in other words, just to stick with my hot dog example, at a certain point, if all you can spend your money on is hot dogs, you know, the money needed to buy the 10th, 11th, 12th hot dog is actually superfluous, and that maps up. What can, if you already have $10 billion, what can you buy with 11 that you couldn't buy for 10? Right? And so, think about it just in money terms. An additional $1,000 will raise the welfare of a homeless person quite significantly. A billionaire probably wouldn't even notice the difference, and then there's just a spectrum in between. So that theory would very strongly suggest that once people reach a certain amount, and you can debate what that amount would be, but once people reach a certain amount, really any additional income should be going to those at the bottom. Because those are the ones whose utility, to use the economic term, will be raised the most by it. Um, that all seems to me basically valid, right? That, that seems common sense and intuitive, and that's like one more way that you can sort of look at this. Now, I, I sort of made, when I was doing my um, argument from utilitarian principles or consequentialist principles, I sort of made it without invoking that specific phrase, diminishing marginal utility, because for one thing, it's just a bit wonky, and I think you can explain it in common sense terms. For a second thing, I think while I'll say it's, you know, true enough and common sense and intuitive, and it is one additional argument for redistribution, I think in some senses, diminishing marginal utility actually sells short just how powerful the consequentialist case for redistribution is, and here's why. It's because, as conceived of, utility is 
uh, a good and it can all be measured on one spectrum. And the idea is, I think that undersells just how much utility can be raised by giving um, more resources to those at the bottom. Because I think there are things that people experience that are negative, that are so bad that they're actually not on the same spectrum, right? So think of the hot dog example. Starving to death is worse than any number of units of having the fourth hot dog, right? It doesn't go down to one line on the graph, right? Getting that first is so overwhelming a good, I would argue that it would have to be measured independently of any of the other ones. Being tortured is bad enough. I used the example in my original um, episode. What wouldn't you do to stop a loved one having a dentist's drill put in their teeth without anaesthetic? And, like, there's no marginal number of hot dogs that answers that question. Now, a, a, a philosophy way of putting this is higher and lower pleasures. So Mill says in Utilitarianism, and I think the sort of instinct behind this is right, that there are some goods that are so valuable. You know, there's no number of um, mildly satisfying crab cakes that will... Why that was my example that came into head? Mildly satisfying crab cakes. Apparently, that's that's what my subconscious fed to me for that one. But there's no number of... Let, let's make it even more mundane. There's no number of saltine crackers that will equal a night at the opera. A night at the opera is just so elevated, it's appealing... Or, or reading Hegel, maybe not Hegel, but reading wonderful philosophy or poetry or something like that, right? There's just... They're, they're incomparable. There's, they're, they're incommensurate. There's no unit of exchange between them. What I'm kind of suggesting here is there's um, higher and lower pains, or lower and even lower pains, depending on how you want to talk about it. There's some forms of physical pain that really you trade in almost an infinite, maybe an infinite amount of, like, lesser inconveniences to avoid them. And the same, I think, with fear and humiliation. They're not talked about in quite the same terms, but, yeah, I think, what wouldn't you do so that your children weren't terrified? I think you realise, like, there's no marginal number of hot dogs that equate to that. So, yes, the, the marginal utility model is sort of true in a sense, and it's, it's an argument, it's definitely a, a sort of intuitive argument that people who are sort of inclined towards an economic -y way of thinking will find appealing. I actually, in some senses, I think it undersells the consequentialist case for redistribution. And one thing I was talking about this to someone, and they were like, it's diminishing marginal utility a utilitarian argument? Because you keep on saying consequentialist. And I must admit, I missed a trick there. I was like, well, you know, I always say consequentialist. And now that I think about it, it's got the bloody word utility in it. This is an overtly utilitarian argument. But it's sort of like a Benthamite utilitarianism, as opposed to like a John Stuart Mill 
utilitarianism. So I think it's one additional argument you could give, but, you know, just because people might know what you know what you mean, I probably wouldn't use that phrasing. And I think, actually, if you think about it in more immediate, more visceral terms, there might be more powerful ways of making that case. So that's my thoughts on diminishing marginal utility and how it relates to this. Next question. I'm an infrequent listener to the podcast. It can sometimes be a bit dense for me to follow, but I do try. It's a great resource, which I've recommended for others. Well, thank you so much for that. I was just listening to the latest episode this morning for the inequality one on my commute. I'm about 45 minutes into it, so apologies if you address it later in the episode. I don't think I did. I was wondering if you have any thoughts on inequality versus poverty. It seemed to me that most of the arguments you make in this latest episode are actually arguments for alleviating poverty rather than inequality. We could probably say that they are connected, in that alleviating poverty might necessitate although I'm sure your libertarian nemesis would disagree, I like the idea of having a nemesis, a degree of redistribution, which would make more, us more equal. However, it's not clear to me that inequality in itself is an intrinsically bad thing, that it's poverty which is the real problem, with all of its contaminant consequences. Yeah, I. this is a really great, great question, and this is something on which philosophers go back and forth on. Here's my first pass at this. I looked at the problem of inequality from a variety of different um, meta-ethical and political ideological standpoints, and I sort of argued that irrespective, or not irrespective, but from a number of different standpoints, you get the same conclusion, which is that the contemporary inequality in the United States is morally unjustifiable, and it is morally urgent that we become a more, notice the word more, egalitarian society. So from all of these different viewpoints, the direction of change is clear. We need to become more egalitarian. But how how much would be too much, right? So if the starting point weren't current American society, but, you know, Norway or Denmark, would you still have that overwhelming consensus? Maybe not, right? And I think the more egalitarian you got the society, the less sort of consensus that you would get. So I am assuming poverty as my starting point, and if you think about the utilitarian argument I just made, the presence of these really, truly worst-case scenarios, I think gives the argument an ethical force that it wouldn't have otherwise. Another way of putting that thought, though, is that it's inequality that makes redistribution possible, right? So you can imagine a society in which everybody was fairly affluent, um, but you can also imagine a society in which nobody was. So this is probably actually the condition of most of the human beings who've ever lived. Imagine a hunter-gatherer tribe or like small subsistence farming communities where everyone's always on the brink of starvation, essentially. And there might be some local differences in that, but there really simply aren't big concentrations of resources. Well, 
in that case, um, the, the, the moral logic is that there's nothing you can do, really, except maybe to transform society gradually over generations to develop more technology and stuff. But the immediate moral case for redistribution is simply non-existent in that there's nothing to redistribute. And this is a case that um, Will McCaskill makes quite well, in that sometimes the implications of moral philosophy can be quite counterintuitive. So the implications of utilitarianism are radically redistributive, right? Um, both within states, we need, and that's how I was thinking about it, but also between states, we need to give a much greater percentage of our resources to the world's poor. Now, the point Will McCaskill makes is how radical utilitarianism can be on this front can seem counterintuitive, but it's not utilitarianism, really, that's counterintuitive. It's our surroundings. For most of human beings who've ever lived, the utilitarian impetus wouldn't be there because there's not wealth to redistribute. And when you have a sort of small survivalist farming community, what utilitarian recommends looks looks a heck of a lot like just conventional morality. You know, be kind to other people, honour your compacts, work hard, contribute to the society, don't, you know, lie to others. You know, in other words, utilitarianism is just traditional morality in that sort of... Um, scenario, and indeed you can justify even traditional morality that seems um, problematic today makes sense back then. So if you imagine a world in which there is no effective birth control or um, STD prevention, and a world in which there is not any, or nor is one possible, any sort of social safety net to care for children, then something like try to only have one sexual partner throughout your life and be loyal to them, that actually doesn't look like a horrible moral precept in that sort of society. That's not to say you could necessarily justify stuff like homophobia that tends to come along with that, but... In other words, a lot of contemporary sexual morality is made possible by the pill and by condoms and by us increasingly be a being able to treat sexually transmitted diseases and us living in a society in which we can provide significant welfare state support to children, and we should, right? So morality is very much context-dependent. The question continues, quote, As it happens, I've become more sympathetic in recent years to the idea that inequality is normatively undesirable, but it's mostly from a utilitarian perspective. I see it as a contributor to the current polarization of politics, the rise of populists, rejection of elites, etc. It's also probably not sustainable within a society to have dramatic inequality, i.e. South Africa is currently looking precarious. Heads tend to end up on pikes in these kinds of societies. Yeah, so you can think about this as utilitarianism. You can also think about it as just classic democratic theory, and I don't think those two are incompatible at all. But essentially, 
you can argue the case, and I think there is a good moral case, that it's normatively desirable that people be able to relate to each other as citizens, both in its own terms and for the sort of health and survival of society. So, like, you know, on the whole, is it good that some people are really able to, like, lord it over others, and having significant wealth is a pretty classic way of being able to lord it over others. Well, as I argued in my humiliation episode, whatever satisfaction people get from really being on the top of the pile and being able to look down on others and, you know, demand their deference is quite trivial and quite petty compared to, I think, the genuine psychological harm that comes from having to noto, having to cower before people, having to endure humiliation, having to be treated as less than. So I think just on its own terms, the utilitarian logic is clear both in terms of the access to resources, the sort of diminishing marginal utility, that sort of types of argument, but also in terms of um, psychological goods like dignity and self-respect. Those things clearly um, can be undermined by the presence of inequality. There's also a broader sense in that, either as utilitarians or otherwise, we should value societal stability. And as the um, questioner correctly points out, it may be that um, certain forms of not having that citizenship, not being able to relate to each other as more or less equals, are societally destabilizing. I think it's more complicated than that, and, you know, when we talk about the rise of populism, when we talk about, you know, is liberal democracy in trouble, which is a, a topic I've dealt with quite extensively on this podcast, and we've had some guests on who say that's exaggerated, and some who say, no, it really is under attack. I think there's a number of different threads and mechanisms and arguments there to be had, but it certainly is the case that public trust in representative democracy is collapsing, and I don't think that's orthogonal to the process of these societies stratifying. I, don't, I think it's not just inequality, I think it's also the denial of opportunity. Like I say, I think there's a number of different threads that have to be pulled apart there, but yes, again, in principle, if inequality can feed into a set of dynamics that is societally destabilizing, that's a big argument against it. Because even if there's like an only like a 2% chance of a big social crash, that's like a bad enough outcome that it's worth waiting in, right? Final, final bit of this question. So I'm spending a long time with this because I think it's a good question. If we were to take 100% of Jeff Bezos's personal wealth and use it for social programs that alleviated homelessness and other kinds of, um, that you describe in the podcast, then the US would be a hugely unequal society. But it's not clear why this would necessarily be a bad thing. Well, I mean, maybe for the reasons that you just mentioned and I just talked about, 
in terms of people relating to each other as citizens and in terms of overall societal stability. That's, you know, incidentally why conservatives supported the welfare state immediately after the Second World War in the so-called post-war consensus. It wasn't for sort of liberal progressive reasons, it was for social stability reasons. Um, but I'll actually do you one better. There's, there's an example in the literature of imagine a society in which everyone is a millionaire, but there's a few billionaires. Now, say Mana is raining down from... I don't know why it's Mana from Heaven, but I'm just going with what the example is. Mana is raining down from Heaven. Should we give it to the millionaires or the billionaires? Now, the intuition is, is even in that society, there might be something a bit off about giving it to billionaires. I kind of personally don't really share that intuition. Like, I'm not sure... I'm not sure it really matters there. And there's also a case of, like, how much normative weight our intuitions in these sorts of counterexamples can be made to bear. I think this is, this is sort of a case in which, of all the different reasons I went through in my economic inequality episode, um, some will come online, some won't. So should we be redistributive in a society of millionaires and billionaires? From the utilitarian standpoint, you know, you might argue that it doesn't really matter because we've sort of maxed out on... We've sort of maxed out on diminishing marginal returns in both cases, right? So utilitarianism kind of takes itself offline there. I think the things you could appeal to is like an idea of dessert. Have the billionaires done anything to deserve their wealth? Is it owed to them? I think you also could appeal to an idea of, like, virtue ethics, of, like, is a society better and more virtuous? What does it say about people's character? You know, should the billionaires want everyone to be equal? You know, would that make them a better sort of person? I will say, just in terms of my own meta-ethical foundations, I find both dessert and virtue ethics to be somewhat, somewhat weak. I don't think they're very compelling overall, but a lot of people do. So in the millionaires and billionaires example, um, then there might be some reasons, but I don't think there's as many reasons, and the reasons are as persuasive. But that's just my evaluation. Some people do find the millionaires and billionaires example compelling. So I'll leave that there. So to sum up then, yes, well, it depends, right? In terms of some ways of looking at this, we are really just more concerned with poverty, right? In other ways, we are concerned, you know, we talked about people as citizens, about societal stability. We are concerned with inequality as such. And then there's some things that might say that we would be concerned with inequality even in a really extreme scenario like the millionaires and billionaires, but I think they're less compelling. So I don't think there's a neat catch-all answer to that, but that would be like a beginning point of like how I would think about the relationship um, between poverty on the one hand and inequality on the other. Next question. Do you think it's unreasonable to argue that the right to property is in fact self-evident 
because scarcity is self-evident. Uh, yes. In other words, yes, I think it's unreasonable to argue that. So I'm not going to go through the whole thing there, but I just don't think rights are self-evident. That you can, They're just there. You can just know they're there. As, as Philip Pettit says, I think that fetishizes rights. What are rights? Rights are respect for things which are ineliminatable for persons to pursue their interests. These are things that have to be thought about, which might to a degree be somewhat dependent or wholly dependent even on circumstance. So I don't, you know, I don't, so given that rights, you know, don't exist completely independently of the world we find ourselves in, I don't know how they can be self-evident, right? As the question itself implies. And if anything, this is, um, that was on Twitter, and someone replied to it. So this is just how good some of my commentary is. This, this was um, someone replying to that question. I suspect the argument would run more readily the other way. Scarcity would suggest that the exclusive inviable control should be limited. See Harrington's argument in Oceana that the amount of, the amount of land an individual should own should be limited, end quote. So in other words, if there is only so much stuff, then we would want to make an effort to distribute that stuff evenly because it would kind of be a moral outrage if someone ended up taking up all of it. And we can just think about that from a variety of perspectives. So from the utilitarian, diminishing marginal returns perspective, from the rights perspective, in fact, if people have a right to property because, you know, they, um, it helps them lead autonomous lives to have exclusive control over some goods, which it necessitates in turn, you know, owning certain things, well, then we want all people to have that sort of rights protection, do we not? So, yeah, no, I just don't buy this argument from scarcity, really, at all. And you can go into it more, this is quite a Lockean thing, right? But, no, I don't, I, I just don't think the idea of self-evident rights make sense in general. Next question. I may have just lost track if you mentioned it, but what is the term for the argumentative strategy you characterised, wherein someone bounces between distinct frameworks to avoid getting stuck with the inadequacy of the argument? So, th there is no term, and I turn it back to my audience to suggest one, or if there is, I turn it back to my audience to point it out to me. But it's just an observation I've had, that... Um, Strong libertarians who want to really um, defend the current distribution of resources and capital will make an argument within one meta-ethical set of premises, and then when it's convincingly argued against from within that framework, they'll jump to another framework. So if they say, look, capitalism is the only way to generate wealth, and anything that messes with capitalism is just going to make people poorer, then you can say, well, capitalism has generated wealth, yes, but there's not one model for doing it. You have capitalist economies that are very redistributive, and, you know, plenty of, never mind the Nordic countries, my home country of the UK, it is plenty capitalist, but it also has nationalised healthcare, it also has 
to a greater degree than America, a welfare state and redistributive taxation. So you can be capitalist and still ensure certain minimums. And then the, the libertarian will say, well, yes, but you can't just take people's money in order to do that. So in other words, they, they jump out of a utilitarian perspective and into a deantic perspective. And then they'll do the same thing if you press them within that perspective. Now, I don't know that this is even, like, intentional. I'm happy to believe that in many cases it might be subconscious in that people don't recognise the incongruence of what they're doing. It's just more like they see it as like a list of reasons and they're running through the list of reasons. But it is incongruous. Um... And I don't know what a great term for it would be, so I put that one back to the audience. If you have any thoughts on, like, what a good way of characterising it, let's, let's try and get something going here, by all means, because once you notice it, you see it all the time. Okay, so, that aside, next question. Hi, Toby. Enjoyed the episode. Thank you. There are a couple of things I think you didn't consider. The big one is how to rate future humans potentially trillions, against current humans. Losing track, losing a few percent of the stock market isn't a huge cost, but losing even tenths of a percent of compounding economic growth for any stretch of time is. Unless you're going to do a huge discount rate for future generations. Um. Okay, yeah, so this is an interesting argument. In other words, you know, I said it's it's worth us messing up the stock market to help the least well-off. Well, but if you consider that the stock market would then grow at 1% less a year, then the difference between now and a thousand years from now could be really quite extreme. Um, so I don't mean to be dismissive, but I think this argument is too cute by half. So let me make a big generic point, and there that talk about it in general. So the generic point is that political philosophy gets tripped up hard by the problem of future generations, right? Um, it really doesn't know how to deal with this. And yes, from a utilitarian perspective, future trillions of people definitely outweigh the needs and priorities. You know, just the greatest good for the greatest number would seem to dictate that we take um, future generations more seriously than we do our own. Here's where I think that goes wrong, is society is really unpredictable, and there's actually some, some stuff that borders on the proof of this. We really don't know what paths society is going to take in the future, and we have agency over which of those paths we take. And I think the problem with arguments based on, like, the, the, you know, all these future trillions of people just um, overwhelming the consequentialist calculus is we just don't know enough about the long-run results of our actions to really weight them in. Um, Popper has a great argument about this. I covered in my Popper versus Adorno episode, which is he says... The future social institutions are tied to the growth of technology. How technology will develop will develop will in turn affect how society is structured. That seems pretty self-evident to me. Then he says, 
the future growth of knowledge is not predictable. Now that turns out it can be proven. So because the future growth of knowledge is unpredictable, the future structure and nature of society is also unpredictable, right? And so at a certain point, we talked about um, diminishing marginal returns. It's kind of like, yeah, you do have to apply a very steep discount rate to the future, in which you are discounting states of affairs more 10 years from now than you are from today, and then at 100, 1,000 years from now, it essentially drops to zero, but not because those people don't matter, just because it becomes so hard to forecast, basically impossible to forecast. We just have to say, well, we don't know, right? And if you Look, I'm made more sceptical by this sort of thinking, and I don't mean to say it's morally equivalent, but just how badly it's let us wrong in the past. Um, the justification for both the Holocaust and Stalin's various genocides was, who will remember? What does it matter if people die now? When you think about the uncountable millions who will live happily in our glorious new Reich, if it is the case, that, you know, the Jews are poisoning our society and destroying our ability to have this glorious thousand-year political institution, then it would make sense, would it not, to exterminate them. Yes, it's really bad now, but that evil is dwarfed by the good of these future trillions. Now, I'm not saying that the argument about markets and compound interest is morally equivalent to fascism or Stalinism, I merely bring them up as a way of showing the, the extreme liabilities of those ways of thinking. Now, I think a lot of people think, yeah, but like, Nazism and Stalinism were complete fucking pseudoscience, and even ignoring the morality of it, these things were pretty cuckoo to big with, and if you look at the sorts of intellectual premises that they were appealing to, well, yeah, no wonder things didn't work out the way they expected to, and morality aside, this is not the sort of theoretical framework which one would expect to be empirically verifiable as a long-run predictive tool. That's completely fair, right? And someone then might go on to say, but actually, if you look at, like, economic growth and stuff like that, we can say that these things, yes, the stock market goes up, there's business cycles, but actually, this sort of pattern of long-run aggregate growth has been something that we've really seen, to which I say for, what, like 100 years? You know? Like, I think this idea that economics really is a science, and really is, you know, we really are going to see 2 to 3% GDP growth, or, you know, we'll track your variable, you know, with, of course, fluctuations for the long run, indefinitely, seems to me a little naive. It seems naive on the front of premises. The premises to which it appeals are bits of 18th century pseudoscience and descriptions of human nature that are 
values judgments that sometimes do and sometimes don't track the reality of how real human beings behave. So on the premises, it seems weak. And on the conclusions, let us just say that there are processes in place by which we can get this continual few percent a year growth, right? That is not a guarantee that those processes will continue. What happens when technology reaches a point where we have a machine that is capable of assembling any combination of protons, neutrons, and electrons into any other combination of protons, neutrons, and electrons? A perfect 3D printer. You can shovel dirt in and it will produce anything, including replications of itself. What happens then, right? That is coming down the line at some point, right? What happens when we have that? Do our principles of like annual 2% growth as a long on average, do they, does, does that hold true? Or does that invention fundamentally reshape how our societies function? I don't know. But, like, that's the point. I don't know. I don't know what that machine does to the world when it comes into being. So, the idea that the needs of a current generation are overwhelmed by these future trillions, those future trillions exist behind a veil of ignorance. We don't know what sort of world they will be living in. That world is contingent upon our decisions, and that's what's terrifying about this. But we don't know what sort of world a thousand years from now those decisions will create. Now, you can become completely paralysed by that, or you can just revert to an older, simpler, and frankly better form of morality, where you just say, we can only pursue the right as we see the right. You know, morality, as I said earlier, like the demands of redistribution are only possible where it's practically possible, but the demands of morality more generally are only possible where it's epistemically possible. You know, we can only act morally insofar as we can have some idea, it might be very imperfect and very uncertain, but when we can have some idea what the results of our actions will be. And we do know, we really strongly know that giving the homeless person a home will make them better off. You know, we really do know that. And so we can only pursue the right as we perceive the right. I think that's, that has to be where I land on this. But let me just grant, grant the premise, though. Say you don't buy that sort of high theory stuff and say, you know, that we can sort of maintain processes that'll lead to annual 2% growth and say we do my redistribution thing and that comes down to 1% growth. I think there's a good argument that at the specific point we are at in human history, even assuming that we can benefit those future trillions by maintaining this this 2% growth, we actually want to take a pause on this model we have wherein the success of political units and the success of economies is determined by their ability to have 2% or 3% or whatever it is growth per year. Why? 
because the processes that are generating that are running as the risk of things that will destroy it all, right? Like, yeah, we've got this nice little engine, and it'll keep on generating 2% growth a year, and, you know, it would hurt the future trillions if um, it was only 1%. Well, what if the engine's overheating? I'm making this metaphor up as I go along. What if the engine's overheating, and we're running a risk of it blowing a gasket and breaking down altogether, possibly beyond our ability to repair it? Well, then the future generations are fucked, and we're fucked, right? Well, what might that overheating be? Well, global warming, right? Like, if sea levels rise and... A hundred million people have to leave their homes in Bangladesh. What does that do? What if that's so politically destabilizing as to lead to a nuclear exchange? What about if, you know, as I said earlier, there is something about inequality that feeds into societally destabilizing patterns? I don't think there's any law of nature that sort of liberal, representative, capitalisty democracy has to survive. It might not. Now, I do think some of the stuff that's said about Trump and Brexit can be a little bit fear-mongery. I don't think we're in this eschatological end times. But I think if you look at a state of affairs in which Congress's approval rating is in the single digits, in which people markedly do not trust their politicians and political processes, often for a variety of legitimate reasons, and in which increasingly people distrust each other. They don't feel like citizens of the same republic anymore. I don't know. I would I'd, I'd be sceptical to put a number on it, but if it's even as high as 10% in the next 100 years, that doesn't seem crazy to me. One in ten in the next hundred years? That liberal democracy just sort of falls off a cliff? Well, you know, that's a bad enough outcome, both for us and for the future trillions, that we have to wait it in. And I actually think that's sort of where we're at. We have sort of set up processes that give us this 2% growth a year. But I think. Those processes are also giving rise to non-negligible risks of the whole thing collapsing. And I think, you know, we could talk from the point of view of future trillions and say, you know, there might be quite a big difference in terms of, like, compound interest or whatever between the 2% and the 1% growth. But actually, you guys right now, are running the risk of us future trillions not existing at all, or existing in some sort of post-survival wasteland that movies and books and TVs and video games like to fantasise about for some reason. You know, we'd actually rather you didn't roll the dice with that in order to guarantee us more prosperity. We'd rather be here than wealthy. Well, yeah, that strikes me as correct. 
So that's my argument there. Firstly, we really just don't know what's coming and how we can affect it, and we can only pursue the right as we see the right. Secondly, even if you are trying to do this big, long-run thinking, I think the first thing we have to do, the morally urgent task, is to really shut down or minimise these sorts of existential risks that we're running up. And some of those risks are not unrelated to problems of poverty and inequality. And I think it's naive, it's really naive to, to, to assume that, that we're completely secure. We just don't know. So that's my answer to that. Um, next question. I'm quite a new listener, but this has been my favourite episode so far. Again, thank you. All I want to add is that ever-increasing wealth inequality is an inevitable consequence of capitalism unless specific measures are taken to counteract it, and to ask philosophically what we should do, stroke, think about that. So I'm going to pull the old trick I do sometimes when answering questions and say, well, it depends what you mean by the key word in the question. So... I mean, there is an analysis of capitalism, which is like kind of Marxist and so on, in that it's always, you know, just going to pull apart to extremes and that like the classes created by labor and capital are going to, you know, capital will increasingly consolidate in the hands of fewer and fewer and fewer and fewer people until there's no longer people to buy the goods that are being produced. And I mean, that hasn't happened. And also, just capitalism can mean a lot of different things. So if we talk about the original models of capitalism, something like Walrassian equilibrium or perfect competition, what's being imagined is a lot of buyers, a lot of sellers, perfect competition, uh, perfect awareness, interchangeability of goods. Imagine a vast agrarian marketplace selling corn right? And there's 250 people, farmers, all come to market to sell corn. And there's thousands and thousands of customers there. And one bit of corn is as good as another bit of corn. So you go, you compare prices, and you buy from the cheapest, right? Now, what that'll do is it'll force price down to the cost of production, because everyone will be bidding themselves to the bottom. It'll give the most efficient by certain criterion of efficiency, distribution of resources and price of goods, and you'll get this thing where like supply and demand meet, right? That probably wasn't the best explanation you're ever going to hear of the first fundamental theorem of welfare economics, but just never mind like the, the nerdiness behind it. Think about that vision of the world. It's not obvious to me that that vision of the world leads to this thing in which wealth inequality skyrockets and skyrockets and skyrockets. The model of capitalism that seems to lead to that is a monopolistic model of capitalism in which a few firms really sort of, to use a Marxist phrase, own the means of production. But then, of course, there's anything and everything between that, and it's also like, by capitalism, do you mean a pure libertarian economy in which there are only market systems and maybe like some sort of night watchman state, but that's it? But by that standards, never mind like the Scandinavian countries, America's not a capitalist country, you know? 
And this this is like, you know, where we can get onto some stupid debates in sorry, that's a bit dismissive, where we can get into debates which are largely semantic about like, you know, do we want to vote for a socialist you know, or a capitalist, and a lot of hay is made between the difference between um, Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren in that respect. But if we lived in a world where both of them got to implement every one of the reforms that they were proposing, it would strike me that those two worlds would be, if not identical, quite similar. Would the difference be enough to say that one world was capitalist and one wasn't? No, it's just a different way of, you know, say we lived in a world with Medicare for all, a very aggressive tax on wealth, all the other stuff that they're proposing, all of which I favour, by the way. Well, one way of looking at it is to say, well, we have a lot of redistribution, we have some sort of government provision of health insurance, um, we have free college, so on and so forth. So it's socialist, right, because we're doing all those things. Another way, way would be to say, well, the bulk of the economy is still in market transactions. It's just a sort of regulated, caring capitalism. And so you could say that as well, right? Um, so to answer the question, certainly, you know, there are some forms of capitalism maybe our current form of capitalism in the US that do necessitate, you know, do strongly imply this, like, ever-increasing wealth concentration. There's other ways of capitalism that don't. I mean, again, do we think of the Nordic countries as capitalist? Some people say that they are, you know? And again, this just goes back to my thing of, like, what do you mean by capitalism? So the question is, what philosophically should we do stroke think about that? Well, I'll just give you a quick few thoughts right off the cuff. I think we want to think about capitalism as one part of a total system, but not the most important part necessarily. So let me make this on a few levels. Let me make it on a practical level, on a moral level, and on an analytic level. So on a practical level, like I say, you know, um, I don't, I'm not particularly getting worked up by the differences, you know, like Warren has said she supports Medicare for all, but she's going to do it by taxing employers rather than a payroll tax, right? Um, Bernie, I think, hasn't put out a financing plan, but seems to be more going in the direction of a payroll tax. You know, you can have that policy debate. That's fine, right? But neither one of those visions is assuming that we don't still have private employers and that we don't still have firms, and, you know, nobody is saying, right, this cuts both ways, you know, no, we are not going to go or be Venezuela or Cuba or Soviet Russia if we elect Warren or Sanders, right, we're still going to have a market economy, and we should have a market economy, right, because 
actually, though the government tends to provide healthcare better than private markets, it also tends to do a pretty lousy job of producing consumer goods. I don't think there's ever been a successful instance of the government running agriculture particularly well, so it shouldn't. So on the one hand, we shouldn't be too concerned by whether by saying, well, because we're describing that as socialist, it's going to be Cuba or something. On the other hand, we shouldn't be too concerned by describing it as sort of capitalist. I think what we want to think about is a market economy, not what the overall description of the system is. I think that's a bit of a black hole to get into. But, like, a market economy should be part, but not the only part of a system. I don't think we should do away with at least in the current state of human affairs, I don't think we should do away with it altogether. It is, you know, a useful way of generating consumer goods and so on, but it shouldn't be allowed to dwarf everything else and exclude everything else and say there's no room for the government to provide education or healthcare or stuff like that. I think it's this totalizing um effect that the market economy is having, which is why people rail against the term capitalism, right, is by capitalism, they understand in which a system in which the market economy engulfs everything else. So I don't, I think on a practical level, it should be one part, but only one part of our economic system. What about on a moral level? Well, I talked about this with Cecile Tharp, and I am somewhat taken by the idea that we do still want property rights, that part of having autonomy in this world is having things that are yours. I do think, you know, it is nice if I just look around my apartment here, I've got right in front of me my nice Mac desktop and nice microphone that I bought to do this, and part of me living my own life in my own way is me having those things so that I can have this podcast. Now, you know, maybe really would it be that bad if I had to share them? No, but that should be on my own terms, shouldn't it? And then arising from that sort of property rights would be the idea of trade, in that who should it be up to? You know, what I do with this thing that is part of my autonomy if I want to sell it or use it or, you know, trade it. Well, it should be up to me, right? And so I think on a moral level, there is a justification for the sort of basic logic of a market economy in terms of property and trade. But just like on the practical level, I think it's one part of it. I think having some degree of autonomy and trade is part of what makes a person happy and healthy and able to pursue their interests. But it's not the only part. It's not the only thing. There's other needs that people have. So, on a practical level, and on a sort of moral justificatory level, and then finally, I called it a theoretical level, but I would, another way is an introspective level, how do you want to live your life level? I think we're trained to think about ourselves, and trained to think about what it is to be a person in terms of the underlying logic of the market economy. We're trained to think in terms of rational self-interest. And even when we do things, even when you work for a charity, say, at the end of the day, 99% of people's decision-making is how do I get ahead in my job? How do I get that next pay raise? How do I make sure I don't get saddled with too much work? Right? 
That is not all that human beings are. Now, I do want to say this. I don't want to do away with that completely. My moral vision for how human beings should think about themselves is pluralistic. I do think when you're in a wage negotiation, whatever it is you're doing, it's completely fair that you approach at wage negotiation from the point of view of rational self-interest. I think that's completely fair. I also think that's not all that we are. And when, and when I was talking with Zephyr Teacher, we talked about the idea of a jury, in that when you're doing jury duty and you're deciding if someone goes to prison for murder or not, every bit of that way that you've been trained to think about the world gets turned off. You're not thinking, well, you know, will my stocks go up and down if I acquit this guy? Not only is that how you oughtn't to be thinking about it, it doesn't even cross your mind. You're purely thinking about, is this guy, you're doing the 12 angry men thing, is he really guilty? Is there reasonable doubt? You're acting as a citizen, in other words. So, on a practical level, I do think a market economy should be a market system should be part of our economy, but it shouldn't be the only part, nor necessarily the most important part. I think on a moral level, um, you know, I, I do think there is a case for limited property rights, and that will imply a case for trade, with a sort of de facto norm of you allow trade, right? But that's not the only part of a moral system, and it shouldn't be allowed to override other elements of that moral system. And finally, on a theoretical, or how we understand ourselves as persons, and how we understand what human nature is, and what our motivation is, and what's the basic, like, paradigm that we bring to the world, I think rational self-interest is part of it, and it's appropriate at times. But it's not the only thing, it's not all that we are. Or even the most important thing that we are, we are citizens, we are husbands, we are fathers or wives and mothers or, you know, sorry to use uh, binary pronouns there, but you get the idea. And as Zephyr Teacher says, when you open the door to approaching your life as something other than just an egoic want fulfiller, what comes in through that door isn't just a narrow conception of virtue. It's a whole load of messiness, and stupidity, and angst, and loyalty, and friendships, and ultimately quite deep meaning. It's not easy sussing this thing out, right? And I think where people correctly rile against the term capitalism, they rile against markets. Capitalism must be destroyed. We've just got to shut it down. I think what I interpret that as meaning is we have to shut it down. We have to destroy this totalizing instinct, this impulse, wherein on a practical, on a moral, and on a sort of theoretical understanding of human nature sort of way, it's shut everything else out. Not only are we going to have markets as part of our economy, everything in our economy has to be justified in terms of market transactions. Not only is some degree of autonomy and property rights morally important, it is the only moral yardstick. Anything that infringes on people's property rights is 
inadmissible, even if it would save the lives of millions. We just can't touch it. People have rights, as Robert Nozak tells us, and so far reaching of these rights that it makes us wonder what governments can do. Not only are there situations in which we want to rationally assess our self-interest, but that is the only paradigm. It's not just a description of a world, it's how we should set up and structure our institutions, it's how we should expect people to behave. There should be no room for thinking about and modelling society as if people weren't these narrow, emaciated beings, stripped of any grigosity or self-awareness. So, if by capitalism you mean simply market systems and the types of moral and theoretical justifications that underpin them, I don't think we should smash them, actually. I think there can be truly competitive markets that can actually be vehicles of freedom. Freedom understood as involving elements of autonomy and non-domination as opposed to merely narrow individualistic property rights. Um, I don't think, moreover, that we should totally... I don't want to go full communist where no one ever thinks for themselves or has any personal property or any moral claim to it. No, I, I think moral system, you know, moral, economic, whatever systems, is there's room for all of this. So when social justice types say, I think we need to smash neoliberal capitalism and smash it dead, I do sort of wonder, do you... Do you mean the government running factories and farms? Do you mean no private property whatsoever? Because I'm not for that, actually. We might eventually evolve our society to the point where we can do away with that sort of thing, but we're nowhere near that yet. I don't think that's what they do mean, or if they do. I mean, if they do, I disagree. I think what they mean is this totalizing impulse, this instinct where it just absorbs and crushes everything else. And I think that totalizing impulse, it's, it's a kind of cancer in that I think, both on the practical, on the moral, and on the theoretical level, a market economy, or the sort of moral and theoretical logic that underpins it, should be like an organ in the human body. It has its function, like the liver, say, right? You want a liver, generally, right? I mean, these are nice things. I'm going to have a drink after I finished recording this. We want livers, right? Livers are useful things to have. And indeed, in our current setup, um, it's probably necessary. Like, you wouldn't last very long without a liver, right? Like, I don't think societies do very well when they don't have any sort of market transactions whatsoever, right? Um, maybe sometime in the future we'll have artificial livers and we can think of something else, but for now we want a liver. The problem is, like a cancer, we have this thing in our body politic, in our moral systems, and even how we see ourselves, mind-forged manacles, as the Marxists would say it, we have this thing that's gone, ooh, that liver cell, let's replicate it, let's replicate it again. Let's replicate it again. That's what a cancer... I mean, I'm not a biologist, so don't take me to the bank on this. But, like, that's what a cancer is. Is it finds one type of cell and just starts replicating it, and you get this huge tumour taking over the body. And that's what I feel this, like, totalising form of capitalism has become, and why people are reacting so viscerally to it. Because, like a cancer, it is killing us. Right? Global warming is going to kill us all. <laughs> and there's, there's nothing 
There's the only things holding us back is the practical and moral and theoretical logics of a totalizing capitalism. Our societies are being pulled apart. We are no longer seeing ourselves as citizens. We are destabilizing liberal democracies for the sake of the moral and theoretical logic of capitalism. It is killing us. We have this thing that's just creating more and more and more liver cells to the point where it's pushing out and crushing every other organ in our body, and it is going to kill us, eventually. Might be today, might be tomorrow, but now, but we're living with it at a point where it's still operable, I think, where we can still do something about it, but we're ill and we're sick. And I find it fascinating that over the last two decades, America has doubled the amount of wealth it has. And what we've used that wealth to do is to work on average eight hours a week more. And that actually goes for all but the very wealthiest. Upper-middle-class people are doing it too. We work more. And do you not see it in people? Like, I think one of the advantages to me of my perspective that I've brought to this podcast is I'm not an academic. Like, I'm not saying academics don't live in the real world or they're up in ivory towers or whatever, but I think there is an element of just the wearing, grating effects of the contemporary capitalist economy, both on a practical level, in that how much we pour our lives and our souls into jobs that do not care about us and can never give back to us in the way that we give to them, the energy and our almost spiritual capacities that we should be giving to other human beings and that properly belong to other human beings. People are worn by Everything ultimately being justified by the logic of narrow individual rights, that there is no part of our total social myths, of the narratives we tell ourselves, that are about camaraderie. Or if it is, it's in a very narrow, jingoistic way. And finally, people are being made ill by only ever thinking about what's ahead, only ever thinking about a sort of grasping, usurping model of human nature that's thin, it's narrow, and we all feel it. This, this cancer in our body politic, in our moral philosophy, and in, in how we think about ourselves and how we justify to ourselves, it's making us all ill. And it's not that we need to cut the liver out, I don't think. But we do need to destroy this, this impulse that says it can only be liver cells, and we're just going to keep on creating liver cells, if that makes sense. So that might have been a bit dark, but that is sort of how I see the political and moral philosophy of how we should think about capitalism.